Turn to Acts 19, please. 19, 1 through 20. And uh, we're going to pick up, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to go back and just read the whole, even though we started in this chapter last week, we're going to go back and read the whole chapter again, just to help us see the context and the whole thing as it unfolds here in Ephesus. So Acts chapter 19, we're going to read verses 1 through 20. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And that's about where we ended last week. We continue on in verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, who are you? The man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. All right. So again, this is a pickup of last week. We're going to run through a couple of the points from last week just in summary. But uh, so yeah, this is, this is part two. Rebecca came to me Friday. She said, Craig, people point this stuff out, and I'm a little OCD. So she said, you know, can you tell me on your slide, are you going to have part two, or part like two Roman numerals, or part T-W-O, 
And she's like, people notice this. And then they'll tell me, like, the, the handout was different than the bulletin, you know. And um, so I, I thought, I, I recalled somewhere, like, somewhere, there was a, a sequel to a movie one time, part deux. And I'm like, oh, how, Rebecca, we'll just use that. And I'm like, is that even a thing? And I, and I Googled it. I'm like, is that? And, and actually it is. The Urban Dictionary said uh, this means a superficial, unnecessarily, or a superficial, unnecessary, or overly bad sequel. Um, and I'm like, I'm not sure that's what I want to entitle this sermon. Um, so hopefully it is not superficial, unnecessary, or overly bad. Um, part two. One of the things I want, though, to continue to operate in the background of this as we walk through these points today and as we review the points from last week is this whole reality of spiritual conflict. Okay? It, it is very much on display here in Ephesus. And we have to understand that and take that seriously. Right? You've heard me share, it was, a, it was a few years back in a sermon. Um, I keep track so I don't overuse illustrations. But um, So a few years back, um, I talked about Mount Washington. Uh, when I grew up in, in New England, and Mount Washington is just part of the culture there, where I grew up at least, uh, the, at least the, the local weather channel or the uh, local radio station that we listen to at on all the time. Every morning as part of the, uh, the weather forecast, we, you'd get the wind speed and temperature on Mount Washington. This is part of what they told you. And, um, and it, was, it was really interesting. The thing about Mount Washington is it's not a big mountain. It's only uh, about just under 6,300 feet. Um, it's not even in the top couple hundred, uh, maybe even 300 highest peaks worldwide. I mean, it's, it's, it's a small mountain, comparatively. The flip side of that is Mount Washington is one of the top 20 deadliest mountains in the world. And there's a reason for that. It's because people underestimate it. And I'm not a, a, a meteorologist, so I don't understand all the ins and outs of this. But basically, in, in layman's terms, the, the, the weather patterns just come together because of the mountain ranges and the ocean and everything in that area. And it, it creates some horrific weather and the ability for the weather on that mountain to change within minutes. And people underestimate that. Um, and in January, the average wind speed, the average daily wind speed is 46 miles per hour every day. That's just on average, just kind of accepted um, in January. But then they can have these, these storms come, these perfect storms, and, and it's not uncommon for wind speeds to approach 200 miles an hour. Uh, on Mount Washington. To put that into context with you, Hurricane Harvey in Houston, that topped out at 155. That gives you a little bit of context of what this mountain um, can be like. And uh, one guy was talking about uh, in 2014, he was out, he experienced 120 mile an hour winds and 26 degrees below zero temperatures. He said he got frostbite on the tip of his nose in less than 30 seconds. Uh, just crazy. So this mountain can, can be nasty. Um, the, the, the world's highest recorded wind speed by a human being uh, happened on Mount Washington, 231 miles an hour. I can't imagine the guy who was out there measuring that and that he didn't blow off uh, that mountain. Um, but uh, that was recorded there. So it, it's, it's nasty. And the thing of it is, here, here's the thing. People underestimate it all the time. And so they have done rescues of people, dead and alive, who have been wearing flip-flops, shorts, and T-shirts, and have been stuck in a weather change, and um, have either died or gotten lost and disoriented. And, and we, we were there a couple summers ago. I was taking my kids there because they'd never been there. And, uh, and I told them, we got out, and this is in July, the base of the mountain, 
and it was in the 80s, upper 80s. It was hot. It was nasty. We're in shorts and t-shirts. And I told them when we left, you need to bring sweatshirts, this, this, and this. And we get out, and they're all leaving their stuff in the car. I'm like, no, 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 no. You need to, that needs to go up top with us. I'm like, Dad, it's, I'm sweating. Like, trust me, it needs to go up top with us. And so but we got up top, and right in the mid-40s, uh, cloud cover, and I don't even remember what the wind speed was at that point, but it was, it was freezing. And it, that day it got so bad, they were telling people who had hiked up, they're like, don't, don't start hiking back down. You won't make it. Um, because it just changed within a period of 30 minutes, like that bad. And so that happens at Mount Washington, and people die because of it. And I, I want us to have that in the, in the background as we think about it. We see in Ephesus the reality of spiritual conflict. And we have to understand that. We have to understand that reality. We don't fear Satan, but we respect and understand his, his power, right? Um, and so that's operating in the background as so we talk about that, the reality of the spiritual realm and the power that it has. So some of the things from last week, Ephesus, we see this operating in Ephesus, right? We talked about Ephesus is a, uh, was, was a significant city, a um, quarter of a million people lived in Ephesus. It controlled uh, the, the economics of Asia Minor. Uh, a great temple there, one of the wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Artemis. We'll talk a little bit about that next week. Um, and then the dark arts, the occult, witchcraft, very, very prevalent in this prosperous um, city um, in Asia Minor. Um, and then we talked about this. We called it the Battle of Ephesus. And some lessons we learned last week from the Battle of Ephesus um, is, first of all, it, it required the gospel to be fully proclaimed and correctly understood, right? Paul clarifies that. That's the first thing. That's the foundational thing. Did they understand the gospel correctly? They did not. That had to be fixed, okay? The gospel has to be clearly presented, and we have to defend right orthodoxy and right theology and not compromise in any way, shape, and form, uh, shape or form about the gospel, okay? Paul takes care of that. If that's not taken care of, the battle for Ephesus is lost before it starts, uh, next, the battle required persistent effort, right? Paul was in a synagogue for three months, and then after that, two more years investing in this, this city. It, results don't happen overnight. We're in a results-oriented culture. We want the here and now. We want instant gratification. It doesn't always work that way. We have to pour ourselves in to ministry and to people, right? We learn that. And then we also learned that the, the battle uh, demonstrated the reality of spiritual conflict, and that's kind of where we left off. That's where our Mount Washington illustration comes in. This is real, and we dare not underestimate the reality of it, right? So the battle demonstrated the reality of spiritual conflict. We dropped off in the middle of this point. We need to remember who the real enemy is. We need to remember who the real enemy is. And that's important, because if we forget who the real enemy is, we start fighting battles we shouldn't be fighting, right? Other people become my enemy, because they disagree with me, or, or, or they don't see things the, the wrong way, or, or people in the world, people who don't know Jesus, um, the LGBTQ community, they, they're, they're, they become my enemy. People who, uh, the, the alcoholic or the person who's had an abortion, they become, they're, they're the enemy. Or Republicans or Democrats, they're the enemy. No, remember who the real enemy is. Stop fighting battles against people who aren't your enemy. The people in the church, they're not, I think Satan loves that. Forget that we're fighting against him, fight against each other. No, remember who the real enemy is. It's so important. And understanding the reality of that should ignite a sense of urgency in us. Right? So here's how it unfolded. 
in Ephesus, this, this ongoing conflict between the spiritual forces of evil and Paul. And this is where, uh, the, 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 we talked about it last week, the, the extraordinary miracles. God is beginning to flex and show his power in Ephesus. I love that, right? Here, we see it unfold in this way. There's these itinerant Jewish exorcists who we're introduced to now. And they invoke the name of Jesus over those who had evil spirits, right? So, so they're hanging out in Ephesus. They start watching Paul and his ministry, and they're going, whoa, that guy's effective. And he uses that name, Jesus. Let's do that, too. And so it says, it quotes it. They, they started saying it. They come across demon-possessed people. And they say, I adjure you. I adjure you in the name of Jesus that Paul proclaims. And they attempt to invoke the name of Jesus as part of their incantations. And that was very normal practice back during this time. Right? The invoking of names thought to be loaded with spiritual power. This was an attempt to control the spiritual world. And this is well attested to in ancient literature. This is what they did. The idea was to gain power by leveraging powerful names. It's not unlike how we drop names in our own culture today, right? We drop names sometimes to gain notoriety, right? So I was like, yeah, you know, me and John Piper had a conversation this week. Or Wayne Grudem stopped by my office and we talked some theology, right? You're like, whoa, you know? Like, we, we, we do this. So we understand this. They did the same thing. They just do it in the spiritual realm. Ah, I got this name. I got this name. I'm going to use this. I'm going to combine these names. And they see this power unleashed through the name of Jesus, and they're like, oh, we're going to take that one too. And, and then the other thing too, they'd guard it. Like, you're not telling anybody about it. You know, if you found this out, these formulas, you'd kind of try to keep them secret, right? It's kind of like my grandpa's uh, barbecue sauce recipe. Like, nobody can know that. Or Gwen's, like, have you ever had any of Gwen's, like, magical chocolate or peanut butter fudge? Like, you will not get the, mess, the, the recipe for that. It's a closely guarded secret, right? That, that's what they did. We're not, we're not telling you, you know, we don't, we, sh- we don't share this. Like my son, like, we play Xbox basketball together. And I ask him, I'm like, Zach, how, how do I dunk the ball? And he's like, uh, he gives me this vague, like, well, you move the one stick this way and the other stick that way. And I'm like, okay. And I'm like doing it, and my guys are just standing there, and he swats the ball away. I'm like, and then he goes down and dunks it, right? I'm like, dude, tell me the secret. You know, he's like holding out on me so he can keep embarrassing dad, right? That's, that's what they did. So they got their secrets, their power. He's not really better than me. He just knows more than me, you know. Uh, but um, they got their power, and that's what they did here. They took the name of Jesus. We're going to use it. The problem is... That reality for these guys is that this is an unfamiliar weapon, the name of Jesus, an unfamiliar weapon being used by people who are not qualified to use it. And that's what's happening here in Ephesus. Not only are they not qualified to use it, they don't have the right to use it. Unfamiliar weapon. I remember years ago uh, when I was a kid, we were down in southern Ohio. My, my dad was from, grandma and grandpa, my Uncle Rusty lived there. And southern Ohio, Uncle Rusty's kind of your classic Appalachian mountain man. Shoots guns. We'd go down there and we'd shoot guns, you know. And I remember one time he had a, he had a muzzle loader. Big old muzzle loader, you know, the big old ball, you know, front load the thing. And he's like, Greg, you know how to shoot guns? I'm like, oh, yeah, I knew how to shoot guns. All right. I've shot, like I didn't tell him, like BB guns and 22s, right. And uh, he's like, well, this isn't, uh, you know. I'm like, no, no, I know how to shoot guns. He's like, all right, you know, and he gives me the thing. And um, I've never shot something this big before, right? And he's like, just make sure you keep that stock, like, firm up against your shoulder. I'm like, yeah, no, I know how to shoot guns, right? 
Dad and Uncle Rusty had to drive to West Virginia to pick me up. You know, after that thing blew me back, I didn't keep it up again. I think I had a bruise on my shoulder for probably a month after. It was an unfamiliar weapon, probably in the hands of someone who's unqualified to use it. My uncle thought it was hilarious. You know, I'm laying on the ground, the gun's in the air. Um, you know, that's what these guys are trying to do. They had something way more powerful than they could wield. And it came back to bite them, right? Specifically, we were introduced to these guys, these seven sons of Sceva. Seven sons of Sceva. Now, who is Sceva? Well, it tells us here in the text, it calls him a high priest. But the question most commentators raise is, was he really a high priest? Was he legitimate? Um, possibly, he's just from a family that was connected to the priesthood, maybe. Many, many commentators see this as a self-designation. F.F. Um, F. Bruce in the, the, the New International Commentary writes this, It is possible that Sceva actually belonged to a Jewish chief priestly family, but more probably, and then he puts it in quotes, Jewish chief priest was his self-designation, set out on a placard. Luke might have placed the words between quotation marks had these been invented in his day. Right? Whatever the case, whatever Sceva's connection was to the priesthood, he clearly was not a legitimate high priest in how he functioned, right? In a sense, this was false advertising. You know what I, th I thought of? Um, um, I thought of this right here, false advertising, right? Here's Lucy from Charlie Brown, psychiatrist, psychiatric help, right? Five cents. Now, I, this always drove me nuts, so I don't know if you've noticed this. Like, if you see all the Peanuts comic books, it always says the doctor is in. This is from the 1965, this is a capture from 1965 Christmas special. We've already seen it, you know. Can someone tell me what Christmas is really all about? And Linus, it's that, it's from that. And this is where Charlie Brown's depressed, and so he goes. And I always like, what is that real in? Like, it makes no sense. Like, the doctor is real in. So I, I researched this a while back, because it was bothering me. It kept me up at night. Um, and uh, they said, this was Charles Schultz, this was, a, this was a nod to the 1960s, where being in... There's terminology. I don't know. Some of you maybe know this better than me. And, and attaching real to something like, you know, Terry's real cool. Like, you know, he is. He is. But, um, like, it's, it's, a, it's just an adjective. It's a modifier. Like, re and being in. Like, oh, man, he's in. Scott Christie is, man, he's in. And that, that means, like, he's legitimate, right? He's the real deal, super cool. And I put real, like, real in. And that's kind of what it is. Like, Lucy is, is I'm the real deal. I'm a psychiatrist. I'm real in, right? Uh, but I tell you what, if I'm having, if I need psychiatric help and I have, I'm choosing between L Lucy and Dan Schellenberg, our own resident psychiatrist here at Forest, I'm probably going to pick Dan. Although Dan did tell me after the service that he said Lucy probably charges less than I do. Um, <laughs> so, okay. But, um, right, but here's Lucy. Like, oh, the psychiatrist is in. I'm, I'm the real thing. I'm legitimate. This is false advertising. She wasn't a real psychiatrist, right? That's probably what's going on here with uh, Skiva. What Skiva knew is what the, the way the Jewish priesthood was perceived. Even though people in the pagan world didn't believe in it, they did understand that the Jewish high priesthood had access to a name. That the high priest was one of the only authorized ones to use the divine name, Yahweh, Right? And they understood this. So it makes sense that if, um, you know, the chief priests were looked on to have a little bit of extra chops in the magical word because of their use of this name, it makes sense that Sceva would appropriate this to himself. Like, oh, yeah, I'm one of those guys. I can use that powerful name. 
Here's the thing, though. The demon knew the truth, didn't he? The demon knew who truly belonged to Jesus and ministered in his name versus the frauds and the pretenders. The exorcists and the sons of Sceva have no relationship to Jesus. Therefore, though his name is powerful, their use of his name as some sort of magical formula is not adequate. They used his name in a fraudulent way. They were imitations of the real thing whose only interest in Jesus was to the extent of his usefulness to them. You start thinking about it in that way, maybe we're not too unlike the sons of Sceva. Sometimes Jesus isn't our Lord. He's something we've added to our lives and our only interest in him is to the extent that he is useful to us. I want help. I want inspiration. I want someone to bail me out when I get myself in a mess. Jesus becomes like a lucky rabbit's foot, but not our Lord. It's kind of how he's being used here. Paul's spiritual power comes from his union with Christ, his love of Jesus, authentic faith in the working of the Spirit through him. Note, seven exorcists can't touch the demon. One Paul, we've seen in this passage, God uses to exercise authority over the demonic realm. Well, as we read, it doesn't go real well for the sons of Sceva, does it? They mock him. (laughs) They start by taunting him. Okay, we know Jesus, and we've heard of Paul. Who are you? Like he's mocking him. Who who do you think you are? I've never heard of you. And then he does this thing, and I can only picture, and I'm picturing something, and I don't mean to be flippant. I'm picturing something from like a superhero movie. You, you, You understand the picture here? There's seven grown men, and this demon does such a job on, he is able somehow in the matter of seconds to remove the clothing from all of these men and pound them to bloody pulps. You know, you'd think that if the demon was beating up, you know, maybe two guys, at least two or three are going to escape. But, you know, I'm picturing like the flash. Like, in all seriousness, like how did this happen? This dude is just grabbing them, ripping stuff off. And they are so humiliated. They run out of this room naked and ashamed and bloodied and beaten. That's the reality of the enemy, okay? Susan Garrett wrote a book on spiritual warfare, writes this, the ignominious defeat of the Jewish exorcists by the demons showed the Ephesians that Jesus is a power that cannot be controlled. He will not act as a lackey for anyone who calls on his name. (laughs) My lucky rabbit's foot, Jesus, I don't know. What a powerful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. Don't dare take that name lightly. Don't dare see him as just something that you can leverage for your own benefit and well-being. This is the son of God. They learn that lesson. And we also learn in this, we cannot tackle enemy powers in our own strength. We cannot tackle enemy powers in our own strength. We cannot. We cannot do any effective ministry at Forest Hills in our own strength. We cannot overcome the dominion of sin in our lives in our own strength. You can't do it. We learn that here. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, Though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power. 
to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Right? How is that victory achieved, though? Paul tells us it's not us. It's divine power. And it's not the weapons of the flesh. It's not my intellect. It's not my ability. It's not my inner strength. It's these weapons of war. What are they? Can we say it again? Prayer and gathering together to pray. We will be powerless if we don't prioritize that. And some of us still don't get that. That's a weapon that we have to wield. So we're going to complain about God's not doing this. I don't see God. You probably need to check first. Say, am I praying? It's a weapon that you have to leverage. Knowledge of the word of God. That's where power comes from. You have to leverage that. Controlling your mind and how you think. That's a weapon. Spiritual in nature. The body of Christ. It's a weapon. Spiritual in nature. Those are the things we have to leverage. And if we don't, we're going to be like the sons of Sceva, powerless. Zach and I, we had a little uh, uh, passport purity weekend this weekend. And mixed into that, we did some fun things. So we went to uh, Glow, Glow um, Miniature Golf yesterday up on Plainfield. And uh, blast. One of the cool things is when you buy a certain package and you play the, the, the old arcade games. Like they have them all. You can play them um, unlimited. So I showed them like Defender and Donkey Kong and, and all of these. But then we were playing this game, um, uh, Jurassic Park. And you're holding the guns. Have you ever seen it? And, and you, you got the little gun. And you're, and you're shooting. The, the, the dinosaurs are coming at you. And it got ruined for me like halfway through because Zach noticed that it said we're shooting tranquilizer guns. I'm like, that's boring. I thought we were blowing these things up, you know. And like, no, we're just putting them to sleep. But uh, well, let's just pretend we're blowing them up. It's more fun, right? But one of the things that you, you noticed and was frustrating to us is that you only got five shots. And then you had to like aim off screen and pull. Anyone ever play these? You have to aim off screen to reload. And towards the beginning, we're getting like toasted. And we're like, what? Is, you know, you have the easy part. We did all right there. But then it starts, like, what? And I kept noticing that we, we're forgetting to go over here and reload. And so we're, we're firing this gun, but it's making, but it's not shooting anything. And you're like, oh, that's why we're getting killed because we're not actually shooting anything. We're that, that, that's what we do when we don't access these things. The spiritual realm is real. And we need to use the weapons. Some of us show up and try to live our lives every day firing a gun is not actually shooting anything. Because we don't have the power, spirit working through us against the real enemy. We try to do it on our own, and we're just shooting a gun that's making noise, nothing. Nothing. Right? That's what the sons of Sceva were doing. They had no power. They are firing a blank gun, thinking they're all that. And they're routed by the enemy. Well, the good news is that when we access this power, we see that the battle here in Ephesus demonstrated the power of God is superior to the spiritual forces of evil, right? The power of God is superior to the spiritual forces of evil. And here's how it unfolds. When the people hear about what happened, they start thinking through the events of the past several days, Paul's ministry, what happened to these sons of Sceva. And fear and reverence for the name of Jesus begins to come upon them as they begin to understand real power that they've seen manifested in Paul, a man of God who walked with God, in the attempt of these charlatans. That begins to register with him. And we see that in verse 17. The name of Jesus is extolled. 
The name of Jesus was glorified, was magnified. They recognized the power of Christ due to Paul's success at ministry and casting out demons. In the name of Jesus, something that didn't happen to these seven men. These people of Ephesus probably heard how the demon acknowledged the name of Jesus. Well, okay, there is something to that. True power is acknowledged. And I suggest to you in this point that the battle for Ephesus takes a major turn. Not only with the people beginning to fear and reverence the name of Jesus, but within the community of the saints as well. A fascinating thing happens, right? As we go on in verse 18 and verse 19. It says, many of those who are now believers, these are people who are already Christians, what do they begin to do? They come confessing and divulging their practices. They begin to confess their sin. They're growing. They're being sanctified. They're starting to understand that maybe there's some aspects of my faith that I've taken lightly. Maybe I've held on to some things that I shouldn't have held on to. They begin kind of confessing these, divulging their practices. You need to understand how significant that was. It's huge, the wording of this. The potency of incantations was mainly thought to be in their secrecy. Again, right? This is why Zach doesn't tell me how to use the Xbox controller. The power is in the secrecy, right? I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to dunk the basketball. It was the same thing here. I, I, I get the magic formula. I'm not telling Pete. i got to keep it a secret. And they really believe that. That's where the power. So the fact now that these people are confessing and divulging their practices, they're speaking out loud their practices, and in their minds what they're doing is they're stripping that of its power. They're exposing it. I'm no long, it's no longer useful. Here it is. They're getting it out in the open. Then they go another step, and they begin burning their books. They were probably still using, at some level, their books with some magic formulas in it. They were probably still wearing some amulets. You know, and probably what it was was just, it's just hard to let go of the old. And probably the way of thinking takes time to change. These things would have been about controlling evil spirits. I, I couldn't help but wonder if maybe some of them were hanging on to it just because there's a level of comfort there. Maybe it's a little bit of an insurance policy just in case this Jesus thing doesn't work out. I, I, I can fall back on this because it's familiar and it's comfortable. But what they realized as they were shaken by this scene is that only Jesus controls the spiritual realm and that holding on to these remnants of the occult was dangerous. They realized that they needed to forsake some things that they had held on to, even after their belief in Christ. And so they bring these books, and we're seeing here, Luke makes it a point to tell us the sheer value of these books, 50,000 drachmas. What that is, is about 50,000 days worth of wages. A drachma was about a day's wage. That is a ton of money. Another way to think about it is the yearly wage of 137 people combined, roughly the same number. That's a lot of money. What it suggests is that many believers brought out many scrolls. Here's the deal. Sometimes repentance costs us something. Sometimes it hurts a little bit to release the things that we want to hang on to. But we need to let go of what we treasure in exchange for something better kingdom of God. Here's the other thing, too. They weren't selling these things. I'm like, okay, I'm going to get rid of them. I may as well sell it. It's worth a lot of money. No, I love what they're doing here. 
they are taking these things out of commission. They didn't want them in their homes anymore, and they didn't want them in the hands of anyone else because they understood them for what they were. And they're like, let's destroy them. Let's burn them. Getting rid of them was more important than the money. I remember years ago as a kid, there was a family at our church uh, that was really good friends of ours. And um, God had blessed them. They had some means. A beautiful house down by the water there, uh, Narragansett Bay. And uh, one of the things that uh, Craig had, his name was Craig, the dad, and uh, he, he had had before he got saved and continued after he got saved, was he was very much into expensive alcohol. And down in their basement, they had their own bar in their house and with a pool table in the bar. And I remember, I was a kid, I didn't understand the, the nature of all this stuff, but you could tell just by looking at these, these bottles, and some of them were locked and behind things, just the incredible worth of it. And it was, it was, it was a collection worth thousands of dollars. And I remember when Craig um, was sharing one day that he said, I knew that that was one thing I was holding on to, that God was telling me to surrender, because it had a hold on me. And I remember when he came and he said, I didn't get rid of it. I didn't sell it, I didn't give it away. I dumped out every last drop, because I knew that's what God was calling me to do and surrender to him. Sometimes God's going to ask us, that. That, this is the nature of the Christian life. This is the nature of repentance, of releasing. That's the thing here too, right? These books aren't seized. The church didn't go and start going house to house and taking these books away from these people. They brought them voluntarily. Remember we talked last week? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? The authentic presence of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life will demonstrate itself in fruit of repentance. There will be a noticeable change in our lives. People will see us growing in their faith. The burning of these books indicates a complete renunciation of their old ways as their repentance is on public display. Like I said, getting rid of these things may also have indicated a greater trust in God now. I'm not going to put my comfort and trust in these things anymore. I'm letting them go. And I just ask you, what is it that you hold on to in your life just in case? Just in case Jesus fails you. I got this to fall back on. Where is it you find your comfort, your escape, your security? You need to release that and surrender to God just like our brothers and sisters did in Ephesus so many years ago. People should see a noticeable difference in our lives. There's a couple things, too, that I love about this, the fact that these guys are already believers. There's a couple significant things here. One, that although salvation does require repentance, and it does, we can't expect to change overnight. It's a process. It's not an excuse. Well, I'm just, no, no, I'm going to push. I'm going to push ahead, push ahead, push ahead. But it's okay. Sanctification is a process. And we need to walk through that process, asking God, never thinking I'm arrived. Asking God, what do you continue to show me? The other part of this, I need to be patient with my brothers and sisters, too, who, 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 are, t- who are walking and who are growing and who are seeking. I need to be patient with them, too, right? And secondly, the other thing I love about this is we don't have to be perfect to be saved, either. Right? God takes us as we are. We repent, and we go to God saying, God, I, I, I need you. But I don't have to get everything in all of my ducks in a row before I, I, I come to Jesus, before Jesus goes, eh, eh, just, just one more thing there, Pete, fix that. Okay, good, now I'll take you. It doesn't work that way. I read one time, I, I think it was uh, an old Max Lucado quote. I love this. He says, uh, Christ takes us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. These people were taken as they were, and they grew in their faith, and they got to the point they're like, there's more stuff that we have to get rid of. 
Be open to continued growth. Never become set in your ways. Where does this all result in, in verse 20? The word of God increases and prevails mightily. Luke uses that word mightily on purpose. You thought the spirit world in Ephesus was powerful. There's a greater power. The word of God is what increased mightily. We'll see next week. Ephesus started to become a mess because the word of God was changing lives and exerting its power over the forces of darkness there. This is why in Ephesians 1.21, remember, talked about this a little bit last week, Ephesians bears the name of Ephesus. Um, and while written to that church, Ephesians was also a circular letter intended to be read throughout Asia Minor. But, um, but you can see some of the background of Ephesus emerge in Paul's language in Ephesians. We skipped over the verse at the beginning, but right, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers, right? Another one here, this is what got, Paul's talking about. Uh, God the Father... Um, exerting his power and raising when he, he worked in Jesus Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And catch this terminology. Paul is making a point here because he saw it happen in Ephesus that this power of Jesus, this power of God is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Those are spiritual power terminology right there. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. When the people of God embrace the spirit Authentic faith are baptized, demonstrating their allegiance to Jesus, and allow the Spirit of God to transform them in a life of continued repentance and sanctification. The power of God is unleashed amongst His people. Right. A few things by way of application. Then some of this uh, ties in some stuff for last week. First of all, address wrong theology. Paul corrected the wrong theology in Egypt or in Egypt, probably there too, um, in Ephesus. Made sure the gospel was right, right. The gospel, the battle is not won unless the gospel is right. Number two, do you have the marks of authentic faith, presence of the Spirit, been baptized? Are you continuing to grow and produce fruit in keeping with repentance? Are you showing that you're authentically saved? My, I, my aunt, uh, somebody, most of you know, I, I was born in Texas, my mom's side of the family was all Texan, and my Aunt Deb, my mom's sister, she, she never really loved the fact that we, uh, my family moved to the Northeast and uh, became Yankees. She had some other terminology she used along with that word. She did not like Yankees. She's Texan through and through, Aunt Deb was. And we come, I mean, we're like first, second, third graders. We go down to Texas to visit my family, and one of the first things Aunt Deb would do is she would take my sister and I to the Western store. And I, I mean, outfit us. She wanted people to know, like, you're, you're Texan. <laughs> You're not one of those Yankees. I did. I had the belt, my name stamped in the back, the big old, the big old buckle. I had a gold and silver leather encircled third grade. You know, copper with a big old C in it. Craig. <laughs> so my name's on the front and the back. <laughs> Suede cowboy hat. This one was really over the top. All right, the Wrangler shirt with the shiny buttons. Wrangler jeans, and then, I'm not kidding, second or third grade, elephant skin cowboy boots. Like, who buys a third grader elephant skin cowboy boots? But why? You're an authentic Texan, and you're not going to wear Yankee clothes down here. When you're down here and you're going out with me, you're dressing like a Texan, right? That was Aunt Deb. That was her thing, right? That's the thing, right? Authentic. You name the name of Jesus, you look like it. You have these things. You have the belt. Elephant skin cowboy boots, right? Have you hardened your heart to the gospel? 
We read about that last week. Right? The reason why Paul moved out of the synagogue, once again, because they hardened their hearts to the gospel. You cannot sit here week after week after week and harden your heart to the gospel. There'll come a point where you'll stop hearing it. Right? Trust that God's sovereign plans are best. I keep going back. It's still astounding to me. When you think back to the, the trajectory of Paul's ministry, remember Paul had wanted to go to Asia. He wanted this. He thought this was where he was supposed to be in ministry. God said, no, 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 not to Asia. Ephesus is in Asia. God, in his time and his way, led Paul back around years later. Sometimes God leads us in ways that we don't want to go, takes things away from us that we don't want him to take away from, but he has something better in mind. And here Paul is now watching the gospel explode because now it was God's plan, God's timing. You cannot add Jesus or worship him alongside your idols. Sons of Sceva tried to do this, thinking that they could mix Jesus with other gods, mix him with their incantations. Clint Arnold, one of the commentators, he, he, he have, they have examples of some of these incantations. Here's one. It incorporates pagan names. Hor, Hor, For, Eloi, Adonai, Lao, Sabaoth, Michael, Jesus Christ. Like, honestly, like, when I say that, when I see it on the page, like, it makes me a little uncomfortable. Like, putting Jesus along these pagan deities. But that's what they did. But before we get too critical, we do that all the time. We place Jesus along our, with our own pagan deities, things that we worship in this world. We can't do that. We can't add Jesus. He's not our consultant. He's not our lucky rabbit's foot, right? This was striking to me. Jesus warns in Matthew, everyone who says, Lord, Lord, no, they don't all belong to me. People want to use my name for their own purposes, they don't all belong to me. It's a stern warning here in Matthew. Sons of Sceva were ones who used the name of the Lord, but they didn't really love him. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. Two more points of application. Only those who truly belong to God will be empowered by him. Only those who truly belong to God will be empowered by him. And then lastly, oops, what sins have staying power in your life? What do you need to replace? Some of you... You need to go home today and you need to burn some things. Maybe it's your anger. Maybe it's your pornography. Maybe it's your gossip, your mouth. Maybe it's the way you treat your wife, your kids, your husband. But we need to burn some things. Because it's going to destroy you if you don't. Maybe some of you have heard the name of Aaron Ralston. Aaron Ralston was a hiker a few years back forget what canyon he was hiking, Bryce Canyon maybe out west, and why he was in one of these valleys, ravines, a rock fell on him, pinned his arm. He was there for hours, I think he was there overnight. And it came a point Aaron Ralston realized, I'm not getting rescued, so I have two choices here. I can die in this canyon, or I can take the pocket knife I have in my pocket and I can cut my arm off and survive. And he took his pocket knife out and he hacked his arm off his body to survive. Some of us have to do some hacking, hanging on to some things. you got to burn. Burn it. Listen, right after the service, none of our elders, Dave's up here, I'm here, P, I mean, Terry's up, people who love the Lord, any of our deacons, come talk to us. Say, there's some things i got to burn. We're not going to be like, well, it's about time. We will weep with you, and we'll go, let's burn them together. What can we do? How can we help? What do you got to burn? 